Hey, good morning, Central. Yeah, it is so good to be with you today. How about the worship this morning, huh? Really incredible. I love the blend of a song like the doxology with what can't you do just to give us this vision of the big and great and mighty God we serve. I also want to say hi to those of you joining us online and some of you down in South Haven creeping online when you should be at LifeBridge, right? I want to say hi to you. I uh, also want to recognize those of you here. Uh, from the University of Michigan football program, filming my message. I know you're here. Hold up your iPhone, right? Probably along the 50-yard line, right? Wait, too soon? Too soon? Oh, man. I'm one minute into the message, and I've already offended half of you. Okay, yeah. No, it's so good to be here. Yeah, my name's Dan Davis, lead pastor of LifeRidge Church in South Haven, Michigan, which is a new role for me, actually, just started back in February after 26 years of ministry on the other side of the state at Hopewell Church in Saginaw, Michigan. And, you know, it was really interesting to watch how God worked in our life. It was 2021, 2022, and my wife Kathy and I sensed that God was bringing this incredible season of life and ministry to a close, and we were trying to discern what God had next for us. And as part of that discernment process, he brought along this wonderful opportunity. And when I say wonderful opportunity, I'm not just talking about the pastor role at uh, LifeRidge in South Haven, which is an amazing church family, but I'm also talking about the opportunity to be part of the Water's Edge family of churches. The Water's Edge family of churches, this incredible movement of God that's happening in this generation that is changing lives locally and globally. This vision that was birthed right here out of this church. You guys, central, what God laid on the heart of Pastor Craig and the amazing staff that you have to take the gospel to all nations, to amplify the hope and life of Jesus to all. And when we say all, we don't just mean Southwest Michigan. No, we mean all as in across this country and around the world. The Water's Edge family of churches from Portland to Peru, from Nashville to Nigeria, from San Diego, California to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, from Tampa, Florida to worn, torn Kiev, Ukraine. It is amazing to see God at work. And it's really because of your commitment, Central, your passion to Jesus, your passion for his great commission work when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations. And in these desperate, dark times that we live in, how great it is to see God working in and through this incredible movement. And so really, I just want to say, on behalf of all the lead pastors who are part of the Water's Edge family of churches, I wanna say on behalf of all of them, thank you. Thank you for your generous, faithful, and passionate commitments to be a part of what's happening, to be a part of what's happening down in South Haven, to be a part of what's happening on the other side of the globe, right? It's you, it's you doing and your commitment to the ongoing work of the church of worship and witness until Jesus comes again. Isn't that exciting? And you're a part of that. Well, like I said, it's uh, an honor to be here. And I got to tell you, I'm especially glad that I'm here in October. You know why? 
Because October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Did you know that? They give us one month a year, but we'll take it, right? Pastor Appreciation Month. Do you guys do that here at Central? Because if you don't, really, you don't need a month to really express your appreciation to the pastors, to the staff, to everyone who serves here. So the fine folks at LifeRidge did that earlier this month. Unexpectedly in a service brought us on stage, me, a couple of our other pastors, Justin and Aaron, who, by the way, grew up at Central, right? Great young guys to work with. They celebrated us, they prayed for us, and as it's unfolding, my mind flashed back to a past experience at my previous church. So somebody on stage said it was uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, it was the, the, the beginning of October, and so after the service, this guy comes up to me in the lobby, kind of gruff, and he looks at me, he says, so, it's Pastor Appreciation Month, huh? And I'm like, yeah, that's what they tell me, you know? He says, huh. And he says, you know what else October is? And I play along and I'm like, yeah, no, tell me what October is. He goes, October is also Sarcasm Awareness Month. <laughs> and I think to myself, boy, they have a month for everything, don't they, right? <laughs> so we have the conversation, we finish up, and he says, oh, by the way, good message. And he walks away and I think to myself, huh. Was that good message, Pastor Appreciation Month? <laughs> or good message? Sarcasm Awareness Month, right? And so every Sunday that month, he made sure to catch me after the services and say, hey, good message, right? Well, Central, still October. Two more days, us pastors, we're gonna milk this for all it's worth, right? And we really are. And here's what I'm gonna believe in you. If you happen to catch me after the service today and you come up to me and you say, good message, pastor, I'm gonna believe it's appreciation, not sarcasm, amen? Amen. Well, speaking of the message, let's get to it, okay? When I was asked to speak here on a one-off Sunday uh, in preparation for the next upcoming series in November, I was well aware of this amazing series that you've just gone through. The series about our calling as Christians to be peacemakers both within and beyond the four walls of the church. Peacemakers, this calling that finds its roots in the very character of our God himself, this God of Shalom. This calling that comes from the very words of Jesus, including his words in the most famous message of all, the Sermon on the Mount, where he begins with these beatitudes, including Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. A reminder that we, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Peacemaking, it's in our blood. It's who our father is. It's in our DNA. It's not just something we do. It's something we are. Peacemakers. This is how we show up in the world, church. This anxious, angry, and afraid world of ours. It's desperately searching for a peace that passes all understanding. The peace that is not as the world gives, Jesus says, but the kind of peace, the transcendent peace, regardless of the circumstances that only Jesus can offer. And so as you went through that peacemaking series, my hope is that you will continue to live out what you have learned and that will happen well after the messages are over. Well, speaking of that, living that out, what I just said there is exactly what we want to talk about this morning. Because as every good preacher knows, while every part of the message is important, how you start and how you finish are usually the most important parts of the message. 
They're what matter most. And so you think about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus begins with these beatitudes, right? These simple statements of blessing, including the calling to be peacemakers. But I thought today we'd spend our time by looking at the end of the message, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the story that Jesus tells to cement in us what he has just shared. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at our main passage for today, right? It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. If you have a Bible with you, a paper one, digital one, I invite you to turn there with me. Otherwise, we'll have the verses on the screen behind me. Matthew, chapter 4 or excuse me, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. The very words of Jesus, right, as he's concluding the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters worth of kingdom teaching, northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, crowds gathered, hanging on his every word. Jesus expounding on the good news that he has been proclaiming since the beginning of his ministry, that the kingdom that of his father here on this earth has finally come. And the world's going to change. And so after spending a lengthy amount of time, three chapters worth, talking about this kingdom, he closes with these words. Let's take a look. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, the streams rose, the winds and blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, it's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It fell with a great crash. Now, as I read that story, what comes to mind for you? But some of you grew up going to church, spent a lot of time in Sunday school, so maybe you thought about that kid's song, right? The wise man built his house on the rock with the hand motions, the rain came down, the floods came. Anybody? If you know, you know, right? It's just the power of music and movement that come together. Or or maybe you're like, no, I didn't grow up going to church, but you're like, this story sounds familiar. And you're like, oh yeah, the big bad wolf, the three little pigs who built houses of straw and sticks and bricks. And the big bad wolf huffed and puffed and blew the houses down and they all fell down except one. And you know why that one house stood? It stood because it was a brick house. If you're under 50, talk to somebody who's older. They'll explain that (laughs) reference, okay? Or maybe you thought of the worship song we've been singing in churches these days. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. For me, it's probably a combo of all those, right? But whatever the case is, this passage for many of us is a familiar one. A very familiar one, maybe even too familiar, which isn't always a good thing. What's that saying? That familiarity breeds contempt? Breeds contempt. The whole idea that the more you know someone, the more you know something, you can tend to lose respect for them, find fault in them. Likewise, I think familiarity, especially in the church, can also breed boredom. Boredom, this whole idea, right? Like, what else could I possibly know? Heard it thousands of times. What could I learn? What could I appreciate about this very familiar thing? 
And see, this is the potential danger when it comes to Bible knowledge, where what we know in our heads doesn't quite line up with what's going on in our hearts and how we're living out with our hands, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And see, what I love about Jesus is instead of trying to drive the point home with linear facts, like an instruction manual for building Ikea furniture, right? He tells a compelling story, a relatable story, a parable, if you will. What's a parable? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus had this unbelievable ability to take common everyday examples, point to something and say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like to build bridges from the here and now to the there and then, right? And it's stuck with people. He made a bigger point spiritually and said, today, I want us to approach this parable with fresh eyes, fresh ears, fresh hearts so that the Spirit of God may speak to us through the Word of God so that we may better walk in the ways of God. So to do that, I want to go back to the very last verse, right? The very last verse, verse 27 says this. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. A great crash. You know, as I was reading this passage and thinking about this very familiar text, I was drawn to those last three words. A great crash. A great crash. You know, when the second house collapses, it's not a slow decline. It wasn't a gradual deterioration. And when the storms came, how did this house find its eventual demise? Suddenly, dramatically, and all at once, it fell with a great crash. So it got me to thinking, have you ever witnessed a great crash in somebody else's life before? I think most of us have. A great crash like a failed marriage, a severed friendship, a personal bankruptcy, a moral failure, a split church. A great crash where everything is seemingly fine one moment, (laughs) then out of nowhere, it's gone in an instant, just like that. Now that's bad enough, but you know what's even worse when a great crash happens? It doesn't just affect the people directly responsible. No, when there's a great crash, it also produces this whole new sets of storms for those around them, whether they want it or not, think about it. I've seen it happen in the emotional turmoil of innocent children following a contentious divorce from an adulterous affair. I've seen it happen in the lives of hourly workers who lose their job when the deceptive practices of greedy CEOs are exposed and companies go kaput. I've also seen it in churches. That's right, churches that are seemingly vibrant where the great crash of a pastor's personal immorality, his marital infidelity, his financial impropriety not only impacts his own life, not only touches his own family, but it also rocks the flock. It rattles their faith. It harms the witness of the church and it gives outsiders one more reason to dismiss the good news of Christianity, all because of the hypocrisy they see. You know this whole thing going on right now with deconstruction? It's less about beliefs and it's more about behavior, what they see in the leaders. And see, unfortunately, not only have you heard stories like that, but some of you here have personally experienced ones like that in your own life, the great crash the subsequent storms. And see, that's when it occurred to me, right, that after being a Christian all these years, after preaching this passage numerous times, after reading through it, you know, again and again and again, was there anything new and fresh left to discover? And that's where I think the Holy Spirit showed me something for the times we're living in. And the calling of the church 
and the demands that Jesus has for us as Christians, what we need to see, where our witness of being lights into the darkness of this world has never been greater. So without further ado, here it is. What does God want us to know today from this passage? Here it is. You can't stop the storm, but you can prevent the crash. You can't stop the storm, but you can prevent the crash. Hmm. Wow. You know, as followers of Jesus, it's important that we know the difference between the two because, you know, think about it. Storms and crashes often look alike. They do, and storms and crashes often produce the same kind of devastation, yet storms and crashes come from different places, don't they? Pay attention. I I want you to really get this. See, storms are what happen to us. Crashes are what happen because of us. Storms are what happen to us. Crashes are what happen because of us. You can't stop the storm, but you can prevent the crash. That's what this parable is all about. And so today, we're going to talk more about preventing crashes in our lives, in our homes, in the church. But before we do, can I just say this about the storms of life that we all experience? You know, when the rains come down, when the streams rise up, when winds blow and beat against us. Listen, none of us are exempt from experiencing the storms of life. None of us. Even those of you among us who are the best of Christians. None of us are exempt. And see, while that may seem obvious to us, I want to say it out loud today because there are some pockets of Christendom that are teaching, modeling, communicating, and singing that a blessed life is a storm-free life. That a blessed life is a storm-free life. That if you only love Jesus more, that if you only had enough faith, then suffering would flee. That trials wouldn't touch you. That sorrow wouldn't be your constant companion. Listen, folks, it's out there. And let me tell you, it's pure garbage. It is. Now, let's be clear. For those of us who know and love and follow Jesus, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen. That there is a contentment that transcends our circumstances, a supernatural peace that passes all understanding. And it's only something that the Lord can give and he does and praise God for that. And yet even with all his grace and mercy and peace and love, God still doesn't keep us from the storms. Some of you walked in today, you're experiencing storms. He doesn't keep us from storms. He didn't do it for Jesus. And he doesn't do it for us. Think about it. Betrayal, denial, anguish, abuse, humiliation, rejection, you name it. This is the earthly fate of God's beloved son. The one who is fully obedient. The one who is perfectly sinless. And so why should we as his followers expect any different or demand something better? Now storms happen. They do to the godly and the ungodly, to the righteous and the unrighteous. Storms happen and we can't stop them. We can't, but we can, however, prevent the crashes. And see, that's the difference in this parable between the people that Jesus calls wise and foolish. And so let's go back to the passage. Let's find out what the difference is, right? Personal crashes that not only can destroy us, but crashes that can devastate others. And as we look at the passage again, I want you to play a game with me. And this game is called Same or Different. Same or different. We're going to look at the parable once again really quickly. And I want you to notice what's same and what's difference between the wise and the foolish builder. So back to verse 24. One more time. Here we go. Jesus says, therefore, anyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, I just want to stop for a moment here and have us lock into that phrase, these words of mine, right? These words of mine. What does Jesus mean 
when he says these words of mine? Well, broadly speaking, I think it has to do with everything we read in Scripture, everything that is from Jesus, everything that is about Jesus. But more specifically, as it relates to this context, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, right, the Sermon on the Mount, it has to do with everything that he shared in the Sermon on the Mount and talking about the ways of his kingdom, starting with the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 2, and going all the way to the end of chapter 7. Let me tell you the reason why this is so important. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus essentially deprogramming people in the ways of hollow religion in order to reprogram them in the ways of his kingdom. There's two things going on. He is deprogramming them in the ways of hollow religion in order to reprogram them in the ways of the kingdom that he has come to bring. See, the the crowd back then was hungry. They were hungry for God, but they had lousy mentors and terrible role models. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is, is such a study in contrast. It begins with the Beatitudes and all these blessings for unlikely heroes. But it continues on with these statements. You have heard that it was said, right, what people knew from a religion. And Jesus says, but I say to you, including this radical concept of loving our enemies, right? Even to the point of our religious practices, when Jesus says, hey, if you give, if you fast, if you pray, do it in secret, not in public like they do. No. That's why I think the Sermon on the Mount is just as relevant for us today. Because just like them, we too need to hear from the Lord. So he can deprogram us in the ways of hollow religion in order to reprogram us in the ways of his kingdom. This is where true wisdom is found. So everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What happens then? The storms come, right? None of us are exempt from the storms. Verse 25, the rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So what's the same? What's different? Well, first of all, we know two guys both built houses, right? They did, but not only that, as far as we can tell, these houses looked exactly the same from the outside. There's no difference in the cuteness of their cosmetic appearance. There's no difference between the two, as far as we can tell, in the quality of their construction materials, right? No, they both built houses, and what? They both experienced storms that were beyond their control. That's what they had in common. So what's the difference? What's the difference between standing firm and crashing down? Well, you know what it is, right? It's that part of the house that you can't see. Difference is the foundation. One is built on a solid, rocky foundation. The other, right, on a shaky, sandy foundation. When Luke tells this story, it says that the wise builder dug down deep, and you can picture this person putting in the extra work, breaking into that, that granite foundation, right, to build wisely. Right? This is the difference. The wisdom is found, right? The foundation of sand versus the foundation of rock. That's the story side of the parable. We know that. We've gotten that. When it comes to the heavenly side, Jesus has something even more important in mind, right? The wise man is the person who doesn't just listen to the words of Jesus, but puts them into practice. It's just like the peacemaking series you've heard for six, seven weeks before. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. But it's not just enough to listen to the words of Jesus. No, he invites us to put them into practice. In other words, it's not just what you know. No, it's what you do with what you know. Or according to this parable, I think knowing lower, knowing less, but doing more is far wiser, far greater than knowing more, but doing less. Why? Because the key, right, is not just listening to the words of Jesus, but it's also putting them into practice. Now, if you think about it, this makes church both a very exciting yet extremely dangerous proposition. What we're doing today, right? Where on the one hand, it's exciting to think that we can discover even more about God, about his will for our lives, what Jesus would have us do. So as we read the Bible personally, as we come to worship on Sundays with others, as we listen to messages, as we join study groups, we're taking it all in. We're listening to these words of Jesus for our lives. It's going well. It's so exciting to be part of a move like, of God like that, right? But it's also dangerous, or it can be. Because along with the more we know, the potential for our inconsistency also grows. Our inconsistency, the inconsistency between our knowledge and our practice, our beliefs and our behavior. And see, should this inconsistency gap grow in our lives because we're not putting into practice what we've heard from Jesus? Listen, the bigger the gap, the greater the crash. The bigger the gap in our lives, what we know versus how we live, the greater the crash. By the way, I think the greater the crash is especially true for those of us who are older Christians who've been exposed more to the Bible, especially us high-profile church leaders where there's more at stake. We're the ones who really need to be on guard, right? And yet some churches, we totally mess this up, right? We turn a blind eye to the sins of those in power. Well, at the same time, we're judging the newbies who just walked through the doors, right? Those who come from messy backgrounds, those who are falling forward in their faith. No, right? The bigger the inconsistency gap, the greater the crash. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you want to grow as a Christian, you want to mature in your faith, you want to build your life upon a solid foundation and live wisely, what should your goal in life be? Your goal should be to shrink the gap. To shrink that inconsistency gap between what you know versus how you live. This is where wisdom is found, that it's not just about learning more, it's also about obeying better. Because everyone who hears these words of Jesus and puts them into practice is a wise man, a wise woman, a wise boy, a wise girl, and who builds their house on a solid foundation. One that's going to help them stand strong when the storms of life come. And if they haven't happened to you, I hate to warn you, but they are going to come. So I guess the big question is then, how do we prevent the great crash? If we can't stop the storms, how do we prevent the great crash? Well, here's what I can tell you, right? That it's more about faith and less about formulas. You know, we're addicted to formulas, right? Step one, step two, step three. It's more about faith, less about formulas. It's more about grace and less about guilt. You better, you should, or else. And it's more about love than it is about laws. What do laws, what do religious rules do for us? They, they create in us this fear of messing up. And we live life on the defensive. But what does John say? John says, perfect love casts out all fear. And so as we wrap up, I'm going to give you four ideas, right, of how we all can shrink this gap, right, to prevent the crash. So we can grow as people who are not just listening to the words of Jesus, but we're also putting them into practice. First, here we go. Make worship your priority. 
Make worship your priority. I'm not just talking about the songs we sing. No, I'm talking about what happens on Sunday, what happens between Sundays in the spirit of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Make worship your priority. You know, one of the things that keeps us from practicing what we preach is a lack of desire. A lack of desire where we know what we should do, but we just don't want to do it. That's why I love the end of Matthew 6, also part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know what the antidote to worry is? It's worship. It's worship. So yes, Jesus commands us, do not worry, but then he follows that up and he says, get your eyes off your problem and get them onto God. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. If your heavenly father cares for them so much, how much more will he take care of you? Do you know that today? Which then leads us to this incredible punchline, Matthew 6, 33. Therefore, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. That's making worship your priority, seeking first, seeking often. But we need to continually refuel, refresh the vision of the goodness of our God and the glory of his kingdom. To get to that place where it is so vivid, so attractive, so compelling that everything around us grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I call it the power of a better yes. Instead of trying to muster up the strength to say no, 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 no to the bad things, we need the power of a better yes so that we're drawn to the good things. And if we don't have it, then ask Jesus for it because he'll want to give it to turn your have to into your want to. This is what happens when we make worship our priority. Second, do what you know by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes the challenge isn't our desire, it's our ability, where we feel too weak to overcome the forces that are working against us. What does the scripture say? Like the pressures of this world, like the temptations of the flesh, like the lies of the devil. But thankfully, we are not alone in our struggle because the Christian life is a partnership of power. It's a partnership of power that the Holy Spirit of God indwells every single believer at the moment of their salvation. Your salvation, mine salvation. He lives in us as this constant presence, as this continual power, the same resurrection power, people, that raised Jesus from the dead, Scripture says. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to rely upon the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll shrink the gap. You'll have help in the moment and strength over time. This is what it means to grow in Christ, to mature in our faith, to grow in our sanctification. This is how we battle against the inconsistency gaps in our lives, which leads me to this third one. Confess your gaps and receive his grace. Confess your gaps and receive his grace. That even if we have the desire, even if we have the ability, <laughs> nobody's perfect. Nobody is. No, we're all going to blow it. This side of heaven, we're all going to fall short. We're all going to have those inconsistency gaps where we're not always practicing what we preach. So when that happens, here's what I say. Own it. Don't ignore it. Confess it. Don't cover it up. This is the freedom. This is the forgiveness of the good news that we have in Jesus that we are invited to be totally honest with God and with others. That's why I love the words of Peter who says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you want to be humble before the Lord takes just honesty. And that's where that comes from. It comes from grace. And when we experience grace, that's when the inconsistency gaps shrink. Confess your gaps, receive his grace. This is the good news of the kingdom and it's the good news for you. And then finally, speaking of that kingdom, one more. 
hang out more with kingdom people and spend less time with the overly religious. Now, uh, I know this one kind of stirs the pot, right? Talks about church, talks maybe about church people. But see, this is the focus that Jesus is going after in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The contrast that of growing in Christ is a mixture of deprogramming hollow religion and reprogramming the ways of his kingdom and all its goodness. Then we need to be around people who are going to encourage the good in us, right? Rather than reinforce the bad. Let me show you what I mean. Something else from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' words at the beginning of Matthew 7. Let me read it to you. Don't, no screen, just Listen. Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And when with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that teeny tiny little speck out of your eye? When all the time there is a big honking plank in your own eye. That's in the Greek, that big honking plank. No, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Listen, let me tell you, you are not going to get this kind of treatment from the overly religious, right? Because they're really good at finding specks and withholding grace, making judgments, spreading gossip, acting superior. So yes, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but I am telling you that conformity to hollow, rules-based, graceless religion is just as toxic. It's just as toxic, if not more so. So choose your company wisely. And likewise, when it comes to the fellowship here at Central, my prayer is that you be the kind of church that celebrates the good and graciously confronts the bad. Endorse what's hopeful. Be aware of what's harmful. This is how we prevent the great crash, to do so in a loving manner, just like Jesus. Well, as we close, I want to ask the worship team to come back on stage. And Central, I just want to say this to you. As one member of the Big C Church of Jesus Christ that spans the globe and the generations, right? I want to say to you, hey, together, let's make worship our priority. Let's do what we know by the power of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that we are not in this alone. And when we do mess up, let's confess our gaps. Instead of looking for the specks, let's see the plank. Confess our gaps and receive his grace. God never tires of pouring out his grace upon us. He is the Father standing at the top of the hill waiting for us to return to him. And then finally, let's spend a little more time with kingdom people and hang out a little less with the overly religious, right? Because life teaches us that we can't stop the storm. We can't, but Jesus says we can prevent the crash. We do that by not just listening to his words, but also putting them into practice. How do we do that? We do it in our lives, in our homes, in this church, and in this community. This is what church is all about, Central. It really is. So let's be the kind of people that hunger after what Jesus has for us, where we are building wisely using the blueprint of his kingdom upon the firm and solid foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is our crucified Savior, our risen Lord, our returning King. So how do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus? We do so by making room for him. And the Holy Spirit search our heart and saying, Lord, where do I need more room for you and less room for hollow, toxic, rules-based religion? 
Because if we've learned anything today, his way is better. Jesus, your way is better. together and allow for anyone who wants to, to come out wherever they need. Break down the walls of all my religion. 
consecrate this moment to assess the gaps in what we know to be true of you what we know to be true of the gospel and how we live it out so God those things that are coming to our minds the things that are resting on our hearts that are creating that gap God we put those things on our lips right now we place those things in our closed hands and we release them to you now to create the space that is needed in order for you to move and do what only you can do to bring a fresh move in us to begin to speak to us with clarity the things that you would have us to do for your glory and for our good. This is our surrender to you, God. Come do what only you can do. Come on, let's sing that together. I will make room for you to do whatever you Position yourself in humility with the Lord as you leave this place. Daily inquire about what those gaps might be between what you know to be true of God and His gospel and how you live it out. And invite the Spirit to begin a work in you each day. We love you. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.